Hello and welcome to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. Today I'm talking to Dr. Miko Long about traveling monks and about their role in monastic education in the 11th and the 12th centuries. Dr. Long earned her PhD from the Scuola Normale Superiore in Pisa, Italy, and now she serves as a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Ghent in Belgium. Her article, Visiting Monks, Educational Mobility in 11th and 12th Century Monasteries, will be published soon in the edited volume Mobilité Monastique de l'Antiquité Tardive au Moyen-Âge, which translates to Monastic Mobilities from Late Antiquity to the Middle Ages. Short-term positions are now a typical but also an important component of modern academia. I've held two visiting scholar positions in the UK, and I've also spent a summer in an intensive medieval Latin course at the University of Toronto. And about half the interviews that I've done here have been with people I know through those positions. And, of course, I met my co-host for our Star Trek podcast, Lower Decks, in that Latin class. So... I'm personally very fascinated to learn more about this phenomena in the high middle ages, and I think you will be too. Dr. Long, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So I thought we might start with really the most basic question about what you work on, which is, what exactly is a monastery? Uh, of course, that's a, that's a very uh, good question. Well, I would say, first of all, uh, a monastery is, well, the place where monks live, where a group of monks live together. And of course, now I have to explain what uh, being a monk means. And a monk, of course, in the Middle Ages, is a person who um, decided to abandon the world, as in our normal society, to abandon a family, his or her role in, in political society, in economy, everything, to lead uh, a life um, which is supposed to bring him or her closer to God. So they have this opposition between living in the world, as in, in, in the society, or living outside of it. So the monastery is ideally separated from, from the world and, in a sense, outside of the world. That's why uh, the monastery ha- have walls or fences. It's, it's a separate space. And there are normally one or more buildings where these people uh, live together. And that's also what defines being a monk, because you also have hermits, for example, who live uh, a religious life, but in solitude. And of course, you have priests who do something else, who take care of of people who are a spiritual advisor of other people, whereas the monks should just focus on living in the community and living, of course, in poverty. Um, They have to give up all their possessions, so they should literally possess nothing. They should, at least theoretically, not be in touch with their families and and lead a a life devoted to, to God. So, so that's uh, that's what a, a monastery is, and of course, uh, these buildings or a series of buildings could be bigger or smaller. In in the 12th century, that's that's my main area of specialty. The average uh, monastery would have around 30 monks living together, but we were also very very big monastery with hundreds of monks. For example, the monastery of Cluny had up to 400 monks. So you can imagine it's like a, a small city in a way. And in the 12th century, what exactly is it that monks are doing in these monasteries? What is their day-to-day life like? 
Well, they they pray a lot, uh, they sing a lot, they attend mass a lot. They have to listen to to mass and and sing together. Um, so that's that's something which is true for every monk. But us uh, actually, it depends because uh, not all monasteries are the same. You have different kind of monks, and you have monastery which uh, put more emphasis on the liturgy that is uh, the singing the praying um, that part of of worshiping God uh, but also other monks who um, for example spend more time working with their hands um, so there are really uh, differences between the monastery but mostly yes they uh, they pray a lot they attend a lot of ma- lots of masses I think uh, eight per day one during the night and then every few hours um, they also um, read uh, they are theoretically supposed to read at least a book uh, a book a year a book is given to every monk so we know every monk should least read at least a book but of course there were some monks who would read more and would uh, study and copy manuscripts that's, that's an important activity for the monks but of course not every monks would, would do that uh, and of course it, it depended a lot which was the monk's role in the monastery because of course there's a huge difference between being the abbot that is the the leader of of the monastery uh, or being an ordinary monk but there were also other roles there was uh, a a monk who was for example in charge of the kitchen and in general the food so there was a monk who was in charge of uh, the door of the monastery one monks who taught uh, young monks uh, novices so there were different roles but uh, the thing they all did was was attend uh, a lot of uh, masses and sing a lot well, your article appears in a volume that is devoted to examining the role of travel in monastic culture, but it sounds like monks have, one, an awful lot to do, and two, their lives are fairly secluded. Uh, yes, of course, that's a, that's a very interesting theme, at least I, I, I believe so, because, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, the monks should normally stay in, stay in their monastery. That's one of their most important vows, the vow of stability. So they normally they, they should not leave. But in practice, we know that monks uh, did travel. And so, well, even on a theoretical level, there is this ambiguity. Of course, there is always the, the risk because the, the monastery is the safe space where you are surrounded by your, bra- by your brothers and uh, you are protected also from temptation, also by their well, well, peer pressure and, and general by their prayer. And uh, so you're supposed to be safe. Whereas if you leave the monastery, you are exposed to uh, much more risk for your soul. And yet there is um, even, a, 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 well, for, for, uh, first of all, a, a necessity to travel, especially for abbots. Um, but also from a theoretical level, um, some monks uh, needed to travel. Um, we know, of course, in the, uh, for example, the tradition of the Irish monks, developed a sort of um, idea of this religious pilgrimage where they would actually cross the sea and then go as as missionaries. So, of course, yeah, some monks could go and then become missionaries. But 
mostly they they would travel for um, practical necessities. Um, of course, uh, abbots needed to oversee other um, other monasteries and and needed to um, well meet people to uh, build alliances or to obtain favor and obtain gifts for the monasteries, and uh, sometimes. Well, monks traveled with them, so monks, uh, abbots could travel with uh, their secretaries, but they could also send monks on errands, for example, to bring letters around to, to another monastery. And so there were a lot of possible different reasons. And the one I, I focused uh, on is um, one which has not received that much attention, that is traveling to learn so the possible educational value of of traveling which i think is is interesting let's hear more about that now what type of education would monks travel for of course for monks there was only one type of education which really mattered and that was spiritual education religious education uh so moral education and also in general learning how to be a better Christian and a better monk. So that's primarily, they, they always have to, to stress that. Um, you can also have another part of, of learning, which is what we would think of immediately, that is um, learning, for example, uh, Latin grammar or learning to read uh, the classics or learn kind of bookish learning. But um, and we do have reference to that as well. But it always has to go together with uh, a more moral and a more spiritual kind of learning. So at least in my experience, you never find monks who, who travel just for um, just to acquire bookish learning. But uh, if there is that aspect, it's those two aspects together. But most importantly, for uh, to become a better Christian. And in what ways do these visiting monks benefit the community that's taking them in, but, but also the community that they've left and, and potentially will return to? For example, uh, monks could travel to another monastery to um, copy manuscripts and then bring back uh, these manuscripts to their uh, to their own uh, monasteries. And that was an important way to, to spread uh, learning and to acquire important uh, texts. So even religious texts, for example, I don't know, the letters of St. Augustine's or um, so really important religious texts. They could also um, learn skills. So, for example, they could be trained to write in a certain way because, again, writing uh, was, was an important uh, task. You could, or they could uh, learn, for example, to uh, decorate manuscripts in a certain way. But, interestingly, they could also just um, learn how to behave um, in, a, in a different way. So, for example, they could learn the traditions uh, and, and the liturgy of another monastery and then come back and, and teach their, um, their uh, monastery of origin. Um, and um, so this could be a way through, uh, through which monastic customs would, would actually spread. 
but at the same time, they could also uh, benefit, of course, the, the host community uh, when they had uh, some skills that in turn they could teach. So there could be really an exchange of knowledges, an exchange of, of manuscripts and an exchange of, of skills, a sort of trade. Um, and they could also, um, again, be the representative of that other uh, mo the monastery they came from. Um, so they could, of course, bring news about uh, the life of, of that monastery and they could show how they would live in, in that other monastery. So in a way, they could be a living advertisement of, of that monastery. And who are the monks who are being sent to other monasteries for the purpose of education? Is this something that would have been seen as a reward for having been a good monk, and perhaps in particular for having been a good scholar or a good student? Or was this something that might be seen as a bit of a punishment, that you're being sent away from the only family and only community that you know? Uh, well, actually, I have found cases of both, uh, both uh, types. So I've found cases where um, really good monks are, are sent. Uh, for example, they are entrusted with uh, copying manuscripts, for example, or with being a sort of uh, an intermediary uh, between their abbots and maybe the abbot of that other monastery. So it was a sort of diplomatic role in a sense. But I have also found cases of monks who were sent to spend a, a, a period of time in another monastery uh, because they had not been behaving well. They had not been behaving as they as it was thought they, they should behave. And it was thought, it was hoped that a stay in another monastery could help them to um, correct their behavior, either because uh, perhaps there was uh, a different kind of, of discipline or because there was a very good abbot who could help them, uh, or perhaps just because a change of air could, could be good for them. And so I found both cases. Well, let's get into some of the cases, some of the case studies that you're working on. First, can you, you tell us about the sources that you use from the Middle Ages? How do we know about these visiting monks in the first place? My idea was to find information about these exchanges in letters, because monks were a literate elite and they wrote letters and they exchanged letters and some of these letters have been preserved. And in particular, uh, I would say, uh, well, one type of letter in particular, um, that is uh, the letters of recommendation. So um, these letters are actually a, a type of letter which existed since, since antiquity and still exists to this day. So when you ask, for example, a professor to write a letter of recommendation for you, so many students know what I, what I mean. And you had a, a sort of similar thing in, in the Middle Ages where, um, for example, an abbot would, would write a letter and entrust this letter to a monk uh, addressed to, for example, the abbot of, of another monastery saying, uh, I am sending to you this person for this reason and, and 
generally that would be a sort of a praise of a person saying this person is uh, a good monk he will not create any problem he might even have some talents and you can profit from from this talent so i ask you to welcome uh, this person in your monastery and and these letters are exceptional sources because we are informed about these uh, exchanges of monks and we also learn uh, which, which type of person were sent and how they were expected to be able to contribute to the host community. And then, of course, we have other letters. So, for example, letters where the abbot says that they have welcomed the person and that they are doing okay. And perhaps then you can might have letters discussing when will this person will be sent back. But in general, letters are a very interesting source to study this um, these monastic exchanges because, of course, they are uh, messages that allow people who are far. In, uh, in, in, in space to, to communicate. So they are a good source to study travel. What was the, the most interesting case of a visiting monk that you found in your research? I really liked letters that um, an abbot, actually very famous one, Anselm, Saint Anselm uh, of, of Beck, who then became Archbishop of Canterbury, so he's also known as Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, he had this ex- series of monastic exchanges going on with his friend Lanfranc, who was then Archbishop of Canterbury. And he had sent a monk of whom he was particularly fond, his name was Morris, to stay um, with the Archbishop for a certain time. And then you can see a little bit the embarrassment uh, about the fact that this monk, after a while, wanted to come back to Beck. But um, and, and uh, Anselm wanted to have him back, but at the same time, he did not want to um, do something which might be uh, not, well re- not well received or not well perceived by the archbishop. So you have this monk, writing back, so when can I come back? And he says, I know I also want you to come back, but we should, you know, be diplomatic. And and basically, it's important to keep the Archbishop happy. So I thought uh, that was um, quite, uh, I mean, you can see the the feelings behind it and also the need of of monastic uh, politics. So the the two elements are mixing, really. And this research that you've done for this article is part of a much broader project. Can you tell us a little bit about what that work is going to be? Yes, um, it is indeed part of a bigger project where I'm trying to study how education worked uh, in monasteries, but um, in, a, in a broader sense that it might be um, thought of. So not just um, formal teaching, uh, classroom teaching and bookish learning, but how monks also learn things from each other in a, in a shared way and in an informal way. Uh, so also using models that are uh, close to our present day learning. So peer-to-peer learning learning um, and exchanges of knowledge uh, between peers. So this is uh, the the bigger project and I'm looking at how monks helped each other in their daily life and and taught each other different things and learn from each other different things. And uh, the visiting monks is really uh, a, a small part of that, but there are 
a lot of other means of learning um, monks could could teach each other and learn from each other through conversation, by sharing in uh, group activities, for example, by working together in the scriptorium, but they could also, um, for example, sing together and learn by imitating others. And they could also... um, learn by by listening to the conversation of a group of elders so there were there was really a variety of this informal and shared way of of learning well we'll look forward to having you back when that project is all published uh but for now dr long i just want to say thank you for taking the time to speak with me today thank you it was was a pleasure to share uh, something of what i'm doing thank you okay that's it for this episode I'm Glenn McDorman, and as always, you can find me and the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon site. Every bit of support is so helpful, and I'm immensely grateful. Agnes will be off until February, but when I return, I'll be talking with Dr. Rory Cox about the question of whether the late medieval English philosopher John Wycliffe was a pacifist. And until then, awe wale, and happy holidays.